Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Where are we in the battle against COVID-19 here in Hamilton? And Premier Ford is considering reopening the province by region. We'll give you some details on both of those. Protests continue in the United States over the death of George Floyd and systemic racism. We'll get the latest from Washington, D.C. And NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has called out the Prime Minister over the situation involving long-term care. Does the federal government really have a role to play in that? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get a read on what's happening here with COVID-19, which is the thing which has impacted so many of our lives over the last number of months, economically, personally, psychologically, on and on and on. Uh, there are those who seem to think that, uh, that, well, the battle's over and the weather's nice and we can just not worry about doing social distancing or anything else anymore. Uh, I would be hesitant to actually take that line of thought, but some people seem to still feel that way. Let's look at some numbers. Uh, Paul Johnson, of course, is the Director for Emergency Operations Center for the City of Hamilton, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update. Morning, Paul. Hope you had a great weekend. Good morning, Bill. Yeah, it uh, it wasn't a bad weekend. The weekends, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit more on top of things, and um, that does not mean for a minute that uh, the emergency is over, but it's nice not to have the same level of uh, crisis happening each and every day of the week. So, yes, it was nice to get a little bit of time uh, to myself. Dare I say that? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, we did a little running around yesterday uh, to garden centers and grocery stores and things of this nature. I got I was shocked by the number of people that are absolutely doing nothing about this now. I mean, not no no personal protective equipment. Uh, th- a couple of times we had to remind people about social distancing. Hey, uh, you know, just back up another four or five feet, would you please? Uh, do you get the sense that some people do think this is it? That's it. You know, the worst is over. Uh, we're, we're just you know coasting to the finish line here. Uh, I I do think so, and and it's um, it's a message we're going to have to continue to repeat is that there are elements of this that are not going away at, at all, and those elements are. You know, we need to maintain our physical distancing when we don't feel we'll be able to. And some of the increased amount of shopping and activity in the community is a great example of that. When you go to the store, um, you know, there's probably several times in your shopping experience, depending on where you go, that you will be within that two meter uh, halo, as we call it. Uh, and that's why we're encouraging people in public to wear uh, non-surgical masks, non-medical masks, cloth masks or face covering of some kind. And then the other side is, you know, washing of those hands when you get home uh, and making sure that uh, you take that that uh, that hygiene part serious, too. And so I, you know, I do see a bit of that where people are feeling, you know, maybe we're kind of getting back to normal. And and I I worry as more things begin to open indoors uh, that people will forget that the reason a lot of the outdoor things happened first is, A, we're able to physically distance a lot easier and B, it is a lower risk um, uh, environment for people to be in. Your duration of close contact and your environment of close contact is just not the same when you're outdoors. So, uh, Bill, that's the concern I have as we go forward with this is that there's a, a bit of a sense of, whew, it's over. Everybody's got their reopen plans going, you know, city no different. And regardless of what you call it, people feel we're over it. <laughs> and that entirely is not the case. Well, especially when we see some of the, uh, well, I guess the, the right word here is warnings from uh, medical offices of health, such as Dr. Richardson in our area and others around the city and the country and uh, the planet, for that matter, that are saying, if you let your guard down, there will be a second wave, and it, it's going to be serious. And uh, and again, 
I'm not, you know, trying to be a Donnie Downer here, but we're learning more and more about COVID-19 all the time. And now, you know, there's a line of thinking in the medical community right now that this is far more than just a respiratory problem, that it can have an impact on different areas of the body. I mean, this is not the flu. And uh, if if you think, oh, it's, you know, what's the big deal? I can ride this out for three or four days. Talk to somebody who's gone through it, and you might get a different perspective. You, you do, and and you know we're we're somewhere in the five to six month range of knowing about this in Canada. Probably more that five month range of knowing about this virus. It is not. Um, it it is what it is. It is a a novel virus, and it 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 is not something else. It is not you know, and and we sometimes use these things to try and 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 let people know you know what they can expect. But the reality is, we don't know all the things to expect, and and I think the medical community is finding that out. And, you know, some of the stories that you read when people say, hey, I, I, you know, I'm, uh, they self-describe themselves. I'm a millennial. I'm healthy. I eat right. I exercise. I'm, I'm, I'm young compared to being in, you know, a, a retirement home or long-term care facility. And, man, it was scary. Man, it was significant. And, you know, again, for most people, it's mild. But that also doesn't mean that we should go, well, for me, it will be. The, the, the chances of, of it, it being more serious is there. And I think that's the, the balance we have to have. We don't want to put the, you know, the fear in people that they can't ever go out and do anything because that's not helpful either. But that not. message bill is a hard one. You know, black and white is much easier. Open, close, do this, don't do this. This is a little more nuanced because, of course, if we, if we say to folks, well, don't just don't go everywhere, anywhere. Um, that's, in, that's impossible. Our, you know, all these other rotten things will happen from an economic, social, and other health perspective. But to say, you know, well, don't worry about it, it's not that bad, is not fair either because uh, it can turn bad. And the answer is we don't know what it, will, what it will look like. And there is no treatment and there is no, um, obviously, vaccine available for this. So I think that's the balance we're in. And for those who feel it's over, I would say, well, if it's over, then why are we lining up at grocery stores? I can't remember, Bill, the last time I lined up at the Fortinos, yeah. uh, but I do. Uh, why are our rec facilities closed? Why are overnight summer camps in this province not happening for the first time? And I, you know, I certainly can't remember not being able to go to an overnight camp, but they're not allowed. So think about some of the things that are still closed and canceled. And I think that is some of the message about, you know, this is how serious we feel this is because I can't imagine, you know, people not wanting to have overnight summer camp opportunities available. It's a bit of a rite of passage for, for, for all children in this, in this province and it's not happening. So that gives you some indication that it must be serious. Well, exactly. Listen, I got about a minute left here, but I'm going to talk on the show today too about uh, the premier's uh, well change of mind. Uh, to talk about maybe opening the province up regionally as opposed to a, just a, a broad-based situation, as he seemed to be leaning towards a little while earlier. I know how now that he's developed this newer policy, how is this going to impact what you and your, and the gang are doing at the operations center now? Does it put more pressure on you to open things faster than you may have wanted to? Uh, well, actually, probably what it does is allows us to use local information and okay. do our decision making that way. And so I think that that's helpful because we can tap into, you know, Dr. Richardson and her team's knowledge of what's happening locally and, and do things with a bit of that. Sometimes, you know, you listen to the press conference and, and I'm not complaining, but you do sometimes listen to the press conference. This is opening or that's not. And then we just go, OK, now we got to scramble. This might be a way to say, you know, when you're ready, these things open, and then we look at the local information and make it happen. So I, I think those are, are are things. I think the balance of some things happening provincially, so you don't have these regional differences that would cause real chaos, 
but then you do recognize that it is different in certain centers in this province than it is in, in other areas. We're so vast and so different, uh, Bill. I, th- I think this is a, a, a nice way to get us through this next period of the virus. Well, and with, you know, the numbers don't lie here. I mean, let's face it, the highest concentration of, of confirmed cases is at the GTA, and we're right on the cusp of that. Uh, so we've got to be wary of what we're doing here. But at the same time, you know, Hamilton is not Toronto, and we'll just like to think. And again, you know, I guess we'll finish off the conversation, as you always do, and say it's really up to each individual here. I mean, if you're going to play by the rules, uh, this transition can go smoothly. If we don't, well, you know, I, I'd hate to go back and say, okay, we got to lock things down again. But, you know, I don't want to get to that point. I don't Nobody think anybody wants to does. Go back and, and that's why we really need to do uh, do well as a community. And I would say this, the other challenge, you raised it a bit, is the other challenge for us, given our situation in, in, in the GTA or the Golden Horseshoe, is we have so many people that travel back between the GTA, GTA and Hamilton. So really the GTHA will have to come up with a, a way that we look at it because as more of the economy opens up, more people will start to travel to areas that may have a different uh, level of, of COVID in the community than, than we do. And we'll have to ex- experience that and we'll have to play that out. But I would say, you know, as I always uh, end, there's a very few simple things we can do to keep the spread of this virus at its lowest possible amounts. And let's keep up that physical separation, mask when you can, uh, all the good hygiene measures, and uh, we're going to continue to do well. Exactly. Paul Johnson, of course, Director of Emergency Operations for the City. Paul, as always, thanks for this. Uh, stay healthy and I'm uh, sure we'll talk again in a few days. Same to you, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye. So as we mentioned, uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, did, well, what some people are categorizing as an about face. I tend to think there's maybe a little more to it than that. Uh, and said, yeah, let's let's reconsider these uh, regional openings for the province. Uh, Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who's covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years, uh, joins us uh, to give us a perspective on this. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Are you surprised by the, uh, the Premier's change of mind? I, I was a bit surprised, uh, given that uh, I, I think he... I think he's off base, quite frankly, by doing this. And I'll tell you why. You know what? We thought that this virus was in China, didn't we, at one time? And it's mm. not going to come here. Well, it did. So, okay, they open up St. Thomas. What's to stop me from going to St. Thomas? Or Nothing. anybody from Toronto goes to St. Thomas? I mean, it. You know, today people can go wherever they like, and and it's just so transferable, easily transferable, this disease. I don't know how what difference that's going to make if it's done regionally. Okay, we we saw it in Quebec. You know, they opened uh, the schools up outside of Montreal, and guess what happened? It, you know, the kids got it, and the and the teachers got it. It's it's not that you know. I mean, it's it, there isn't some kind of big wall between let's say, us and Brantford, we can easily drive to Brantford, we can go shop in Brantford, and we could easily, if we, ha- we have it, we could easily transfer it to somebody in Brantford, and there it goes, you know, and so on and so forth. I don't get it. You know, okay, let's say they open up Muskoka. You know, the number of cases there haven't been that much, but, well, of course, Everybody's going to go to Muskoka because for their cottages, for you know, for just for the day trip, whatever. So I don't know how this makes any sense to open up regionally. I really don't. Well, I'm just wondering if it's going to make the situation worse because you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, I mean, just to use your example, I mean, you know, Brantford's a 10 minute drive from where I am in Ancaster here. If if the movie theater is open in Brantford, a lot of people might be tempted to say, "Well, I'm going there then. I won't open them up here, but okay, let's go there." Uh, and I, they don't know if I'm 
testing positive or not. I don't know if I'm testing positive or not. Uh, now, the Premier did say that, look, at he's changed his mind, and I don't have a problem with, with politicians changing their minds if there's solid evidence for it. And he says that's what happened, that he had a, a, disc, a discourse with a number of medical officers of health from across the province who convinced him this would be a good tact. Uh, but again, I, I don't know how much of a conversation they had about the, uh, the the ins and outs of this, and and the good and the bad and the ugly about this, uh, because it's one thing to say, as you've just said, that okay, if you're a small community with hardly any cases, why can't we do everything? Well, the reason why is because if you don't lock down and shut down and, and put some barriers up, you're going to get them. They're, you're right. This is summertime. We travel all over the place in the summertime. We're, we're transient. That's that's what today's society is. And your, your analogy, you know, going to, to, to Brantford and going to the theater, well, people don't know that you're from Ancaster. No, they don't, they don't ask for ID at the, th- at the no, door. Exactly. So what, now how, how does this make people safer in those regions that are to open up? Okay, I understand that there's places that hardly had any cases at all. Thank goodness. But that doesn't mean it couldn't change on a dime. Well, because we've seen that happen in places in the United States, haven't we? Yes. Uh, Georgia comes to mind, but other places as well that just said, hey, to hell with this, we're going to do what we want to do. And they've done it. Uh, and there's been an increase in the number of cases all of a sudden. And you they're know, for it. To the surprise of nobody, because that's what every doctor said, that if you do this, there's going to be a second wave uh, and more cases. And, you know, <laughs> what part of we got to get this thing under control? Don't some people seem to understand. I'm surprised uh, that medical officers of health would be counseling the premier to say, look, let's do this. Well, he might have talked to they might have talked to the medical officer of health in a region where there's been very few cases and said, well, you know, we're all right, Jack. So why can't we open up? Well, it sounds great on paper. Yeah, but didn't we have this discussion a few weeks ago when Haldeman Region did the same thing? Yeah. And they, they were basically telling people, if you own a cottage here, yeah, we're going to fine you if you come to your cottage. They don't want you here. That, that was the message they were sending because they didn't want to spread the virus. But if you're going to say, okay, leave it to each jurisdiction to do what they want to do, you're going to have differing levels. And people will gravitate. You, know, you remember, because when you were still covering Queen's Park, the uh, the huge kerfuffle around the smoking bylaw. And, you know, we in Hamilton tried to enact oh, one God, and I got all kinds remember. of pushback. <laughs> and, you know, there was a different rule from Burlington than there was in Hamilton, than there was in, and on and on it went. And people basically, before the province stepped in, gravitated and say, well, I'm a smoker, so I'm going to go to Burlington, or whatever town it was, uh, because Hamilton's being too rough on us, until the province put this thing wide. You can't do things in a piecemeal fashion. But, but a, that is a perfect, I've forgotten all about that's a perfect example. You know, where they did it in a piecemeal fashion, and, you know, people from were driving from Hamilton to Cambridge or wherever it might have been so they could sit and have a beer and a smoke. Yep. And it, it was the most ludicrous thing that you can imagine. I mean, Ireland went sno- no smoking before Ontario did, if you can imagine. I do. I remember that. Yeah. And, and so there's a perfect example of how it, you know, doing things in a piecemeal and ad hoc fashion it does not work. And believe me, this is not going to work. Well, we'll see what happens as uh, they come through with this uh, in the next couple of days. It's going to be up to a number of these municipalities. And, uh, well, we'll be counting the numbers, as we always do. Bill, I think uh, before we go, I yeah. think people just have to get used to the fact that we're basically for the rest of the year are maybe not locked down, 
but our lives have changed dramatically and i and i don't think things are going to change at all in terms of sports or anything else for this year in terms of people being able to go watch a sport or gather in great numbers or that it's just the way it is and i mean we're all going to have to get used to it i think so richard brennan as always badger thanks so much for this great talking with you again take care you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml as the world has been watching the last couple of days about the horrific sites uh, right across North America, especially in American cities, it's of course uh, spreading to Canadian cities over the weekend as well, about the racial unrest, about the uh, the incident, the killing that occurred in, in Minneapolis in Minnesota earlier that week, and of course arrests were made on Friday, we know that, but that did not stop the demonstrations. Things have been ugly and uglier and uglier. Uh, President Donald Trump seems to be throwing gasoline on the fire too with some of the tweets. Uh, calling himself the purveyor of law and order, uh, saying he has, uh, well, he's depicting basically the, the people that are doing the demonstrations right now as members of terrorist organizations, and he's threatening these protesters near the White House with vicious dogs and ominous weapons. That's not the consoler-in-chief, I think, that some people were looking for. Uh, Reggie Cicchini is Washington producer and correspondent with Global News in Washington. In fact, Reggie is right outside the White House now, and he joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Reggie, thank you so much for the time today on a very busy day. Good morning. Describe the scene. Oh, by the way, we should mention to our listeners uh, that you are wearing a face mask, of course, as per the instructions. Uh, So if we sound just a little bit muffled, you're like many of the other folks that are on the scene right now. Uh, What was last night like? What's it like right now in the streets of Washington, Reggie? It's a a vast difference, uh, Bill, from what we are seeing right now to what we experienced last night. I mean, this morning outside of the White House, uh, there, there are people out for their morning jogs. There are media out here trying to cover the aftermath. Uh, There are police that are trying to keep some order. There are a number of cleanup crews that are attempting to deal with the broken glass and the the number of uh, of boards that need to go up across these buildings. Uh, But there is just room to move. Last night, different story. There were thousands among thousands of people gathered here, uh, angry, chanting, protesting, uh, and being met with resistance by police, uh, be it with either uh, tear gas or, or with pepper spray. Uh, and, and it was it was protests that went well past the curfew last night of 11 o'clock. Right now, a marked difference. Any indication that they'll be back again tonight? There doesn't seem to be any end in sight at this stage anyway. Well, and, and that's the fear, and that's why D.C.'s mayor has activated the National Guard to be able to add a, a, an added layer of security. You know, D.C. already has eight or nine different layers of police force. Now to have the National Guard mobilized as well, it's adding uh, just a bit of extra precautions to the list here. And there is that fear that if any kind of protest starts up again today, look, yesterday it started up with several hundred people. It was very peaceful and it ended with what we saw last night. That is a fear that could happen again here in D.C. and all across the country in the hours to come. Reggie, there are a number of people that have been watching this and, and, and accusing the, the president, among other things, of politicizing uh, this killing and, and, and trying to score points with his base in this. Is that what you're hearing? Uh, yeah, and, and and a lot of those those criticisms are fair. I mean, look, the president this morning has been on Twitter over and over again, tweeting about uh, Joe Biden, tweeting about politics, tweeting about the election that's coming up, tweeting uh, Fox News concerns and comments and criticisms about far left wing protesters. Uh, and this is where some of the concern is that the president is simply uh, uh, blind to the situation right now, that there is an, an issue in this country when it comes to systemic racism and he's trying to politicize that uh, by by simply tweeting about things that are just not important. I apologize, we have some police officers coming by right now. Uh, but this is really what's 
uh, fueling the flames right now is the president's inability to effectively communicate verbally and on camera and is simply using tweets that he can hide behind. I, I know that some of his followers, of course, are, are very dismissive of this, but this is a time of crisis. The killing uh, last week was a time of crisis. And, uh, and I know that you've been talking with this in some of the reporting, Reggie. Uh, Americans in times of need like this are looking for leadership. They're looking for the president, you know, Reagan after the Challenger disaster, uh, you know, Obama after Sandy Hook, uh, you know, Bill Clinton after the Oklahoma bombing, uh, to be able to go before the nation and try to help soothe the wounds. Uh, Trump is really just doing the opposite, appears anyway. He, he is doing the opposite, and he's going to continue to stay silent. We heard from his press secretary this morning, Kayleigh McEnany, on Fox News, saying that the president uh, has no intentions of speaking publicly uh, from the Oval Office at any point in the coming hours, if not days, because there is no cohesive plan on what to say and how to speak to the country. Oftentimes, when the president is talking, he's talking to one targeted base, and this is one of those times that that is simply going to be an ineffective way to communicate any kind of message to a country that is on the verge of collapse. The fabric of it is being torn apart, uh, and there is centuries of pent-up and built-up anger that the president is simply not going to address uh, if he comes on camera. Well, and, and the generalizations, too, of essentially telling everybody who's marching in the streets in any of these cities now that they're all part of Antifa and that they're radicals. Uh, there are, by my way of thinking from the coverage that I've seen over the weekend, uh, there are protesters and there are rioters. And sadly, when there are protesters, invariably the rioters seem to come up as well. But it's a concern at this stage right now that he seems to want to paint everybody with the same brush. It is, and that's why he made those comments over the weekend of potentially saying he's going to have the, the United States uh, classify Antifa as a terrorist organization. It's simply something that the U.S. doesn't have the mechanis uh, mechanisms to do. Uh, you can only classify a foreign organization, a terrorist organization, but more importantly here, Antifa is not an organized group. It is an ideology. It is a movement. And if you start lumping in everybody who is protesting with something like Antifa uh, and trying to give, you know, authorities carte blanche to be able to uh, to charge somebody with, with, with carrying out domestic terrorism, uh, the president and, and his administration would be opening themselves up to walking down an incredibly slippery slope. What kind of reaction are you getting from Republicans? Uh, invariably, when Trump gets out of hand, there are some who are going to defend him no matter what he says, no matter what he does. But, in, but you know, with what he's been doing on Twitter and his reaction and some of his comments, the, the few that he has made publicly, Reggie, uh, Republicans tend to kind of just uh, grimace a little bit and run and hide. They don't seem to want, I know I, the only one I could find was uh, Tim Scott, who's a, a South Carolina Republican, a Senator Tim Scott, who says that Trump's uh, tweets have been, quote, unquote, not constructive, which is hardly a damning criticism, but that's about as negative as the Republicans seem to get now. Well, and that's about as that's about as negative as you're probably going to hear anything. Look, when the president is in a tough spot where uh, either what he's saying is considered inappropriate or what he's doing is considered inappropriate, Republicans either turn a blind eye or they say that they'll hope that the president will be able to learn a lesson from uh, from what's going on. And Republicans have been incredibly silent right now. Democrats really have been the leading voice when it comes to congressional lawmakers uh, in Washington, D.C. and around the country. Uh, and I think that's what's really starting to bother the president. You'll notice. Over the last several days, he's made comments about the states that are actively seeing these protests, being led by Democratic governors, being led by Democratic mayors. Uh, and it's worth pointing out here that in some of the largest cities across the country, uh, almost a dozen of those mayors...
I've got a blip here from Reggie. I think we have, still have him. Uh, very difficult, of course, speaking from uh, the street right outside of the White House, though, in Washington, D.C. this morning, uh, the day after uh, more violent protests in Washington and many other cities right across North America. Have we got Reggie back yet? Okay. Well, we seem to have problems uh, communicating. The line is still open. But uh, we're not so sure exactly just what seems to be happening here uh, with Reggie Giacchini, our global uh, correspondent uh, in Washington, D.C. Should we uh, try again? Okay, yeah, we'll, uh, we're trying to fix the uh, the connection up in just a couple of seconds here. Uh, and, it, and it's because this is very difficult. And, and I guess the question a lot of people, among others, are asking is uh, is just how long is this going to go on for? Uh, obviously, the concern about the, the, the killing uh, in Minnesota and the arrest that was made on Friday, the officer who we've all, I'm sure, by this time seen on video uh, and was charged with third-degree murder, and there's been some reaction to that. Uh, if, from law professors and others, and uh, that seems to be fueling an awful lot of the anger and and uh, and, and discontent that uh, we're hearing from an awful lot of the people. I think we've got Reggie back with us. Uh, Reggie, did the 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 arrests that were made on Friday, the arrest, I, I should say, uh, some thought would 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 be assuaging to, to some of the people that had been protesting previous to that. Uh, it seemed to be a catalyst for it. Is, is the fact that that was only one arrest made so far from the, all the people that we saw and all the officers? who saw in that video, is, it, is, is that actually one of the reasons that people are getting even more angry than they were before? It's definitely a leading cause to that anger, the fact that only one of these officers has been charged. But I think that there could be a potential change and shift in, in the messaging to these protests going forward after finding out that, the, uh, that the, there's going to be additional levels overseeing this case now in uh, Minneapolis, that there's going to be more state level and potentially federal level uh, uh, experience that's kind of jumping in here. Uh, and that potentially could lead to a not only an increase to the charges against this one officer, but also uh, to additional charges. We've already heard the mayor say that he wants to see the other three charged. We've heard the uh, the governor of Minnesota say that there's going to be likely new charges laid against these three officers. And I think now as we kind of progress through the hours and days ahead with new layers of judicial leadership that's going to be taking over the investigation here. Uh, if we do see additional charges brought against these officers, that could be uh, a message that is conveyed through this protest and potentially could start to tamp things down. I, I don't want to drag the politics into this, but I guess it's inevitable because everybody else seems to have done that. I mean, we're, I guess if I look at the calendar, I guess about six months away almost to the day of the next election down there. Uh, and, and certainly that's on the White House, that's on Trump's mind and not with the rest of his staff at this particular stage. Uh, it, this action of what we're seeing on the streets, Reggie, that you, you're witnessing right now and, and the response from Trump to this brings back so many different memories of some of the other things that have gone on, you know, the good people on both sides arguments and things of this nature. How is this going to play politically? This is a guy that the last series of polls I saw over the weekend uh, had him trailing Joe Biden by about 10 percentage points, which I know this is just a snapshot in time. But is, is this going to help or hurt? And, and I know the base will be there regardless. But let's face it, he needs more than the base to get reelected. He does need more than the base. And the snapshot in time is something that we've been seeing now for weeks. So the snapshot is starting to last longer. And you're right. A 53-43 poll right now for the president up against Joe Biden uh, is a devastating blow to the president's ego right now and is why we've seen this morning the president making an active effort to tweet about, you know, quote unquote, sleepy Joe Biden and, and tweet about uh, the policies. Uh, that Joe Biden could be implementing if he becomes president. Uh, and the president himself has already tweeted, you know, one tweet that said November 3rd. 
But it's important here to remember a lot of these protesters are saying, look, these protests are making a point right now. But if we want to see active change going forward, get out and vote uh, in November. And that could be the message uh, that, the, that the Democrats potentially need uh, to get a shift in, in office is if these protests take that message to say, look, there are problems coming right from the top of this. Let's change the top. And the president simply fueling this on Twitter could be to his own demise. Is there somebody uh, that, that, that can get that message and, 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 and parlay that message and not necessarily stop the protest, but channel that energy, as some of the other folks have said? Uh, you know, I, I quoted in my commentary earlier this morning, Reggie, from uh, Maya Angelou, uh, who said that, you know, hatred has caused many, many problems, but it is yet to solve one. Uh, that's, and, and she's a brilliant woman, of course, and there's so many things and, and people saying things like that. But, you know, can we, can, is there going to be a movement afoot now to try to, to channel this and say, you, if you're upset with what's going on, you're upset with the way the president's handling this, November 3rd, that's the date you have to keep in mind. Yeah, and I don't think there's going to be just one person that does that. I think it's going to be a collection of voices, uh, likely from within the Democratic Party, you know, past and present, uh, to try and mobilize efforts to say, look, this country is broken. There are changes that are needed if we want things to kind of uh, uh, mend themselves back together. Uh, and we may start seeing more people, you know, come out in camera or joining protests. You know, Joe Biden already joined a protest over the weekend. Kamala Harris joined a protest over the weekend. We've heard vocalizations from people like Stacey Abrams and from uh, Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta. These are uh, strong women. They are strong African-American women, and they could be and, and, and likely could become uh, leading voices in the coming days and weeks to try and mobilize these efforts to say, look, protests are a part of our constitutional right. So, too, is voting. And if you want to make a difference, this is how to do it. Reggie Giacchini, Global News correspondent uh, outside the White House this morning in Washington, D.C. Reggie, thanks again so much for the time today. Please stay safe, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. Uh, it's not going away anytime soon. We don't know what's going to be happening. As we say, this is spread to other cities. There was a protest in Gage Park in downtown Hamilton. But Toronto, uh, Vancouver, Montreal, other Canadian cities have seen protests uh, ramped up in many, many major American cities. And and for those of us that have lived through this, and I, I remember Watts in Los Angeles. I remember the Detroit riots in 1967, uh, the race riots after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And there are those who will simply say, well, these are just radicals. But uh, when you talk to some of the people that are out there that are protesting and, and concerned about their future and the country's future, well, this is what one of the protesters had to say. We don't want uh, two justice systems in America, one for black America and one for white America. We want equal justice for the United States of America. And that would be a fitting legacy for George Floyd. Just the sentiment of an awful lot of people that uh, that wrote on the streets over the last couple of days in many, many cities right across North America. Uh, how will this evolve, and what will it evolve into in the next little while? I want to bring uh, Kari Winter into the conversation. Kari is a professor of American Studies at the University of Buffalo. Professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. I'm happy to be here. For those of that have studied this, lived through this, as, as many of us have, and as some of the incidents that I've just articulated from Detroit and, and Los Angeles and, and so many other places, Ferguson, Illinois comes to mind, uh, this, this is, is, is a sense of deja vu, isn't it? There is a sense of deja vu, but I think it's also a sense of something unprecedented in the sense that this is combining with the mortal crisis of the coronavirus, and we have a president who is AWOL. Um, so in terms of a crisis of leadership, a crisis of inequality, 
I hope that we have reached a breaking point that's going to be transformative going forward. If we, if we don't change for the better, I'm afraid that we're actually witnessing the demise of the United States. And I know that may be sounding overly dramatic to some people, but when you see what's happening here, and as we were just mentioning a couple of minutes ago, in times of crisis, people are looking to leadership uh, for somebody to guide them. Uh, as as you know, we, we talked about with Obama after Sandy Hook and so many other presidents, uh, Clinton, uh, even George W., of course, after, after uh, 9-11. Uh, and then we find out that, uh, well, not only will the president not make any public statements about this, but he's uh, he's bunkered down in the White House. I mean, I'm sure you saw on Twitter over the weekend what was trending was a hashtag bunker buddy. Uh, that's not the kind of a leadership that most Americans are needing right now. No, and I'm going to leave it to psychologists to try to figure out what is wrong with him. But he is he appears to be incapable of thinking about the good of other people, the reality of other people. He doesn't have a sense of history. He, does, he really doesn't have a grasp on what's going on. And so we have to look at, at um, the, the um, professor of public policy at UC Berkeley, Robert Reich, says, you know, we, we have to face like he, we no longer have a president of the United States in the sense of somebody with leadership who can galvanize um, but what we need, we've known this for a long time, but what we need right now is to create justice across the board. The, 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 the police force is the arm of the state that is supposed to protect the safety and welfare of the citizens of the country, but it has become the opposite. That is a toxic, systemic problem, but it is not the only problem. The age of the coronavirus is really highlighting the fact of racial and economic injustice that is desperate in the United States. There have been incidents, as we've talked about in the past, some have gone on longer than others. There has been outrage. Sometimes charges have been laid. Sometimes trials have taken place. But they tend to fade away, and, and we tend to forget uh, until the next time. Uh, What's the impact of this one going to be, Professor? Uh, as I, again, we look to November 3rd, which is the ultimate opportunity for people to exact change if that's what they're looking for. And I think that's what those people on the streets for the last few days are looking for, is that opportunity for change. I think that that's right. We have to um, change, the, change the regime in November. But we also, I mean, just relying on the goodness of Democrats is not going to be sufficient. We have to make sure that um, the Democratic Party moves in the direction actively, not just with rhetoric, but moves actively in the direction of social justice. Because we can't have peace. We can't have a secure society unless we have equality and justice. So I think that it's very promising when you look at the slate of candidates, um, you just cited with the previous guest many of the um, kinds of leaders that we can look to, but it needs to be a broad-based coalition of the best, um, most proactive um, people to forge a path forward. So um, Joe Biden may need to be kind of following the leaders um, and organizing the leaders um, but I don't think that he in himself is going to be sufficient. 
We'll see which voices and which leaders do step forward. Uh, I'm sure there's an anticipation of what's going to be happening in the next little while. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time today. I know that, uh, that your city, of course, uh, was also a center for some of the, the protests over the weekend, and things got pretty messy in downtown Buffalo as well. Uh, we can only hope that you stay well and healthy and that, uh, that those leaders do step forward uh, when we need them most. Thank you again for this. Okay, thank you so much. Take care. Professor Kari Winter from the University of Buffalo. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have had extensive uh, conversations over the last couple of years, not just over the last couple of weeks about this, about the long-term care facilities and, and the crisis that exists, and it is a crisis that exists there. And as we've talked about, uh, COVID-19 did not create the crisis in long-term care. It exposed it. A lot of the things that uh, many people that have had loved ones or the people that have worked in these facilities for many, many years have been telling us about, and uh, governments have been very slow uh, to react at all. Well, it's uh, on everybody's mind right now. The Premier has said that he's going to launch a, a commission into this. I'm not quite sure exactly how effective that's going to be, but that's his take on this. Uh, the Prime Minister has talked about it uh, a number of times during his daily briefing, uh, but not without some criticism, including uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who, uh, well, basically over the weekend and, and, and during the parliamentary sessions that were held last week, uh, called out the Prime Minister to do more. The federal government has a role to play. And I've been calling on the prime minister to show some leadership that it's not enough to say that he's willing to sit back and wait for provinces to act, but the federal government can play a role. And a couple of the key ways that we can play a role, first off, the federal government can increase funding to long-term care. The health transfers over the decades have been going downwards, have reduced to the point that what used to be 50-50 is now 80-20. We can increase healthcare transfers and we can ensure that long-term care is rolled under the same principles as the Canada Health Act to ensure that we're getting quality care for seniors. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh speaking about uh, what he thinks is the federal government's role in this whole situation. Uh, this is uh, going to not go away. I, I mean, I just get the sense that uh, I know that we've talked about it before. There have been investigations into some of the incidents that have happened there. But it's become very political right now uh, by all major parties, both federally and provincially. And, uh, well, whether or not that's going to lead to some action on this, some positive action on this, uh, I guess is yet to be seen. I want to bring Peter Grafe into the conversation, political uh, professor, rather, sorry, of uh, political science at McMaster University uh, here in Hamilton. Peter, good morning. Glad you could be with us today. My pleasure. This is not the first time we've talked about this, about long-term care, uh, but it's on everybody's radar right now. And uh, in let's, I guess we tend to forget about the fact, or at least some of us seem to, to forget about the fact, that uh, the Trudeau government is a minority government and very much needs the support of the NDP uh, or the bloc, or conversely both of them, to survive in situations like this. Uh, this seems like an issue that the NDP can really get their teeth into because it's something they've been talking about for a long time. Yeah, I mean, certainly... Uh... I mean, I think for Mr. Singh, it, it is a, a file on which he's comfortable speaking. He can uh, show that the NDP has, in various ways, made this. Uh, you know, it's never been in the forefront of their election campaigns, but uh, certainly uh, it's been part of their political ask over uh, a number of electoral cycles now that there be more investment in long-term care. So that's useful. But I think in many ways what he's doing is really staking out ground, because he recognizes, as you point out, that uh, the Trudeau government is a minority. Uh, Justin Trudeau is looking, how do I get to a majority? And one way to do that is to respond to this public sense that uh, something really went wrong in the long-term care facilities, particularly in Ontario and Quebec. And so there's a need to, to reinvest in those. So I think part of it for Mr. Singh is to make sure that when uh, Mr. Trudeau comes forward with these ideas, 
uh, he can claim some credit for them rather than uh, simply having to say, well, wait a second, I said that so many years ago. There has been some criticism of, of the NDP, and, and to a lesser extent, I guess, the bloc, Peter, in the last little while, uh, as Trudeau has on a pretty much daily basis rolled out a lot of these new policies and announcements and funding for, for various programs, etc., that the NDP were just, well, not ready for an election, they don't have any money in the coffers, and they're just kind of riding along on this, and, cause and just kind of riding out the course here, uh, keeping this government afloat, because uh, they really don't want to go down that election road. Is this an opportunity for Singh to actually get his teeth into something and say, no, we're not, this is this is something we're going to stand ground on? Yeah, I suppose, although it's, it's you know, it's a, a topic on which the Liberals are likely to give ground. <laughs> it's not one which is likely to, to come to an election, although it's true uh, when one does see these kind of ongoing negotiations between the Liberals and the other parties to see who will uh, keep them in power, right, uh, who will make sure they'll vote with the government and, and prevent an election. Uh, this is certainly something that Mr. Singh can use as a, as a bargaining chip, uh, something he will have developed and, and can make some claims uh, on the basis of. So, I mean, I think, you know, again, it's sort of playing in those terms there. I mean, it also, I think, makes it a bit harder for Mr. Trudeau. I mean, Mr. Trudeau can come out and say, well, look at the disasters in Ontario and Quebec. And I mean, it's the provinces who have to run these long-term care systems. Uh, and he can come forward and say, oh, well, we need a program with strong federal conditions to force the provinces to do better. Uh, but I think, you know, Mr. Singh coming out with this criticism, you know, makes uh, makes a case well, that the Liberals haven't necessarily responded to this. In 2015, they promised more money for uh, home care and for mental health, um, but they didn't actually put more money into the core of public health services, and the province has complained about that. And, I mean, that shows up, for instance, in, you know, underfunding of long-term care. So I think for Mr. Singh, it's also useful to to make it a bit more complicated for Mr. Trudeau, who's had it in some ways easy during, I mean, no one's had it easy, but he's had it easier than the provincial premiers during uh, the crisis because he hasn't had to deal with the specifics of uh, public health care system, uh, public health reporting in each province, uh, long-term care facilities. These are really things that the premiers have had to, to deal with, and Mr. Singh in this case is then able to, to turn a bit of the arrow of blame towards the, the prime minister and the decisions over the past years about funding health and what is funded within health. I get the sense that, uh, that Mr. Singh obviously sees the, the benefit of his situation here as well. And I'm trying to think of which program it was, Peter. But last week, the Prime Minister announced uh, funding for one of these uh, employment programs. And the NDP said, no, we need this, this, and this added to it. The very next day, the Prime Minister announced that that's what they were going to do. Uh, so he understands uh, exactly where the power is right now and that he needs these people right now. Uh, and as we've talked about in the past, when minority governments are formed in this country, uh, an NDP liberal uh, combination seems to be a much more productive system uh, than the contrarian system because of the philosophical differences, I guess, between, for instance, conservatives and NDP. Uh, and to that point, I, I think your point's well taken, that uh, it looks like the prime minister is very much willing to listen to what the NDP have to say and, and hopefully try to implement some of those things to, to keep them on side with them. Yeah, I mean, I think for Mr. Trudeau, uh, given the relative weakness of, of the NDP at the moment, and in some ways it's almost costless, because for people who aren't watching closely, they aren't seeing these as, you know, wins for uh, Mr. Singh and the NDP. They're just seeing things that the federal government is doing and maybe things that uh, uh, are appealing to them. So uh, in terms of managing a minority situation, I think, you know, it's not it's not got a lot of cost for, for Mr. Trudeau at this moment. Uh, I mean, it's aided as well that we're in a situation where uh, the way we talk about economic policy has fundamentally changed budgetary policy uh, from three months ago, from a period where a $20 billion deficit uh, was portrayed in the media as, you know, way too large to uh, a recognition that occurred interest rates. In fact, 
you know, we could borrow much more to get us through a crisis uh, without necessarily creating a huge ongoing problem of debt financing. So in that context, the ability to spend a little more on certain programs in order to uh, buy time for his government is, is quite straightforward for Mr. Trudeau and doesn't open it up to the same criticism of, of spending too much. In a circumstance like this, I'm, I'm always intrigued about how the pol- politicians are going to respond to this. And, and in the past, when the, this issue has been brought up, and sadly, it's usually because of some tragic scenario at one of the, these facilities, or a number of them in some cases, uh, they, tr- they draw that line in the sand, don't they, Peter? It said, well, that's really a provincial responsibility. You should really talk to your premier and your MPP about that. Uh, and, and both uh, what I'm seeing from premiers and from Mr. Singh and from other people, frankly, that, that are, are still up in Ottawa these days, is they're throwing that right back and say it doesn't have to be that way. And, and you mentioned earlier about the Canada Health Act uh, that was basically wrote out in 1984. Uh, they did not include these facilities. They called them nursing homes more than long-term care facilities back in those days. But there's a lot of folks right now that are looking at that and say, well, you know what, we could have and should have done something about it then, but that doesn't mean we can't do it now. In other words, they seem to be turning the heat up on the federal government and say, you can do something about this if you really want to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think always. Uh, I mean, the Constitution can't just be a wished away. So what the federal government can do is to, is to make funding uh, on this contingent on provinces meeting a certain number of responsibilities uh, or a certain number of conditions. Uh, you know, again, as we saw with the Canada Health Act, when the federal government pulled out of funding their share of health care, you know, the provinces actually got a lot of sympathy uh, from Canadians saying, oh, wait a second, you can't actually hold us these these conditions if you're no longer putting the money in. So, you know, that will be the, the nature uh, of that debate. I mean, the other part of it is, you know, what are Canadians willing to spend money on? Are they willing to be taxed more for these things? So on the one hand, at the moment uh, where we see, you know, the disaster in the long-term care facilities, there's a sense that, yeah, we should do better by them. Uh, but it probably won't be long before we have politicians saying, wouldn't you like a tax cut? <laughs> and so, uh, again, I think it's one of those moments where we as individuals, but also collectively as Canadians, have to make choices about um, to what extent do we feel a sense of collective responsibility. And that responsibility also comes with the responsibility of paying the taxes to support, uh, you know, facilities that can, for instance, you know, put in place proper uh, planning for uh, disease outbreaks or that are able to pay staff sufficiently and give them enough hours that they don't work at three or four different facilities moving, uh, you know, sickness around. You know, those are the, the, the important questions that we'd have to ask. Well, shame on us then, because we don't pay as close attention to a lot of that stuff as we should. And you're absolutely right. You're, the, the mantra that we seem to give politicians time and time again, Peter, is, you know, cut my expenses, cut my taxes. I'm paying way too much taxes as it is. Uh, and, and they're simply, you know, they're, they're just doing what we're asking them to do, basically, and we don't pay attention. When the Ford government came in and said, you know, we're gonna, there's going to be a tax cut, and we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we didn't know at the time and didn't do, do, I guess, the homework to understand that, well, part of that tax cut was cutting spending the long-term care facilities. I and mean, we went from 600 inspections in those facilities one year to nine the next. Uh, what did they think was going to happen? But we we weren't paying attention until all of a sudden it reaches a crisis point. So we, I guess, have a responsibi- responsibility here to be a lot more diligent ourselves. Well, I guess you get what you pay for. Right? Yeah, exactly. And the question is, are, are we worth it or not? Uh, so, I mean, even in Ontario, where we had the idea we didn't have enough uh, long-term care uh, facilities, you know, we, we had a government before this broke out saying, yeah, we need more long-term care facilities, and part of the problem is that we have too many regulations on <laughs> these places are run. So, you know, the solution was to, 
you know, try and cut corners further to hope that it might make it at the margins a bit more profitable for some private operators to come in. Uh, you know, at the other end of this uh, of this situation, we may say, well, that's probably not how we want to build long-term care. If we want to build long-term care, which is actually quality and, uh, you know, protects the people who are living in it from, and as well as the people working in it from these kinds of disease outbreaks. Is there a, a movement, is, is there a mindset right now to get this thing done? Uh, you know, it, again, historically, We've been outraged when we hear these stories, you know, the, the, the terrible tragedy that happened at St. Josephsville a couple of years ago. Other facilities, of course, the wet loffer situation in Woodstock from a couple of years ago. Uh, not a whole lot happens. I mean, there can be coroner's inquests, there could be, you know, recommendations made, and some of them get implemented, some of them not. And then we kind of get on with our lives. Uh, is this one going to stick? Uh, I think it will for a short period of time, but I think you're right. It's, it's in some ways a bit like childcare. Right? It's a yeah. situation that's really important to families but for relatively short periods of their lives. And so uh, to actually get a broad political constituency saying, no, we, we need to make the big investments that are required in here on an ongoing basis, you know, is difficult. And I mean, with child care, you have the case where it's actually an excellent uh, investment in terms of the long-term social payoffs. And it's a bit harder to make that case in the case of long-term care. There it's much more about uh, respect uh, for people at the end of their lives and for their contributions. And so... Uh, you know, it's difficult politically, um, but again, in a situation where we've had a crisis such as this, uh, there probably is a bit more political will than normally. But your point's well taken. When when COVID gets under control, and that's going to happen at some point in the future, I hope, anyway, uh, and, and if you don't have a, fa- a loved one in a long-term care facility, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, isn't it, for a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we have busy lives, and <laughs> and we move on quickly in terms of what we think is important, and so... You know, I think when we come out of this, there will be some uh, politicians saying, okay, now the big issue is we spend so much money, how are we going to, to cut uh, and get back to a position of fiscal sustainability? And there will be others that saying, no, this crisis has revealed some important problems in our society that we have to invest in if we're going to be stronger as a society. And so I think that will be the debate we get coming out of that. And I think, you know, the, the funding of long-term care will certainly uh, be part of that, of that conflict. Uh, and both levels of government, uh, certainly federal and provincial, in the uh, the next little while. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Great to get your perspective on this. Right, have a great day. Take care. You too. Peter Grape, uh, political science professor at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.